Support for NPR comes from ADP. Say you're in HR and a solar flare adds an extra hour to each day. How would this impact business? ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to help your business take on the next anything. ADP, always designing for people. A warning, this episode contains discussion of sex. In the wild, wonderful, and really, no kidding, wild, new film, Poor Things, Emma Stone plays a woman brought back to life from, at the very least, the brink of death. She's a clean slate, unconcerned with the bonds a repressive society tries to put on her. The film reunites Stone with the creative team behind the Oscar-winning film The Favorite, and it shares that film's darkly comedic sensibility, but it is even weirder. I'm Glenn Weldon. And I'm Linda Holmes, and today we're talking about poor things on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Joining me in Glenn today is Vulture TV critic Roxana Haddadi. Welcome back, Roxana. Hello. And also with us is writer and critic Walter Chow. Welcome back, Walter. Hey, thanks for having me. In Poor Things, Emma Stone plays Bella. She's a young woman in Victorian London whose nearly lifeless body is found and experimented upon by the brilliant but twisted surgeon Godwin Baxter. He's played by Willem Dafoe under a lot of prosthetics. Bella has no memory of her previous life, and we watch her develop her new one under Dr. Baxter's care. She's naive, inquisitive, and self-determined. Over the course of the film, many people, mostly men, attempt to control her and force her to conform to rigid societal standards. There's a soulful medical student played by Rami Youssef, a hilariously sleazy lawyer played by Mark Ruffalo, and a bored cynic played by Gerard Carmichael. But the story of poor things is the story of Bella coming into her own, defying the evils of sexual repression and social injustice, and flatly rejecting the need to let others define who she is. Poor Things was written by Tony McNamara, who wrote The Favorite, and directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, the visionary director behind that film, as well as The Lobster, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, and more. Poor Things is in theaters now. Glenn, I'm going to start with you. I I know you liked this one. I like this one. I mean, are we still saying inject this into my veins? Is it the, that the thing that the kids are saying anymore? Um, this is probably my favorite film of the year, and I say that even accounting for recency bias. And something else I worry about the longer I do this job, which is novelty bias, because I recognize in myself a tendency to give, not well, not to give more weight to, but certainly to get more excited about films that do things I haven't seen before in ways I haven't seen done before. You see as many films as we do, there's a thing you have to account for. It can be very beguiling, but if it is all just slick or cynical you know, stylishness that can mislead you. I do think this film is about something. And I think this film is a perfect marriage of its highly idiosyncratic form with its function. And because the artifice of this film is a key component of this film, because we are in the realm of fable. Mm -hmm. And fables are where lessons get imparted. And this film is about those lessons, which a lot of people might find didactic. I mean, I'm aware that I happen to agree with the lessons this film is so carefully and doggedly imparting, which are about a woman's life in the world Mm -hmm. and sexual oppression and the plight of the poor amid, you know, obscene wealth. I do not think this film is saying anything particularly subversive or sly or even controversial about those things. This film is just declaring what I find to be self-evident truths. I think the appeal of this film is that it's putting those self-evident truths in the mouth, in the mind of a person who is removed from society, who is coming to these conclusions under her own power, which underscores their self-evident quality. So 
I love this. I wanted more. I could live in this film. All right. How about you, Walter? Did this work for you? Yeah, I adore this movie. Mm-hmm. I've already seen it a couple of times. I hope to see it a couple of times more. Mm-hmm. It just is kind of everything that I like. You know, I think it works as a sort of smart sequel to Ex Machina. It's the version of Barbie that's good. <laughs> I, I love how it pushes certain social buttons in just the right way. Just, just through, you know, the performances, the I could go on. I saw it several months ago. At Telluride, it's just been bursting inside of me, wanting to share it and talk with people. So what a treat. So you liked it too. Roxana, how did you feel about uh, Poor Things? I guess I'm going to be the lone voice of somewhat dissent because I did not love it. There are parts of it that I really, really like. I think the production design is this like nightmarish Terry Gilliam pastel dream space. I loved being in that world and the layers of that world. I have really admired how Emma Stone has just become this completely go-for-broke actress who uses her face in ways that, like, my tiny brain cannot understand how she's making Mm -hmm. the reaction Mm -hmm. that she's making. But there's something about the writing of this that I just found a little bit repetitive and, as a woman, a little bit unimaginative about what womanhood is. I completely can co-sign a men bad take, which this movie essentially is. Uh But there was something about the Bella character herself and her relationships with other women and how she connected with them and the performance and authenticity of womanhood that left me a little bit lacking. Yeah, I can understand that. I mean, I really like this movie, but it is basically a Frankenstein story mm-hmm. that puts her in the position, despite the fact that ultimately her story is about gaining her independence and stepping away from other people's expectations. That does nevertheless put her in the position of being a creation, yep. a creation of somebody else. It doesn't necessarily have that creation element, but it's still about this woman who, for whatever reason, is very childlike as she is when we first meet her in this movie. Mm -hmm. So I I agree with you, Roxana. I think there's something about her being kind of handed from man to man in terms of how, how that affects her. I did respect it so much for, as you mentioned, the production design. You know, I love the kind of super stark use of black and white photography and color photography. And this Emma Stone performance, like right from her kind of extremely dark eyebrows. She's really going for a an out there kind of performance, which I, I really liked. If you ever wavered, I think, in this character or tried to wink at the audience, if you weren't completely committed to who she is, I don't think it would work. I agree. I think it's a great Emma Stone performance. I don't think I've ever seen Mark Ruffalo be purely funny to this degree in a movie. He's pretty much exclusively funny. I thought their scenes together were very funny. But I do get what you're saying, that the whole thing is like that coming into yourself as a woman is all about wanting sex, which is not necessarily true, but that's sort of the metaphor that the movie goes for over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And and I mean, look, it's valid because sexual repression specifically is a thing, right? Sure. But it's not necessarily a complete portrait of what maybe it's aspiring to. But I just think the form is so interesting that I would love to see the collection of lenses on this movie because there are distorting lenses. There are kind of like super wide lenses. I, I admire the form of it enormously. Yeah, the Emma Stone performance, I mean, it's such a big acting job, as you say. And it's such a big ask because we have to see her arrive at her 
understanding of the world pretty much in real time. Like she is creating herself before our eyes. That is a unique acting challenge. And I also like that the film, the screenplay at least, supplies every character with nuance. And as you refer to, Linda, not every actor reaches for it. Of course. But Yusef, right, playing the sweet, sensitive medical student who falls in love with Bella, Mm -hmm. the smart thing about the film is that he's just as controlling in a different way than a lot of the other people. I mean, even the Defoe character gets to have a teeny tiny arc, a little click of understanding. The great Catherine Hunter plays a madam, a Parisian madam. And ever since I saw Catherine Hunter in the Denzel Macbeth as the three witches, I have just been seeking out her stuff. She's amazing. That's where I know her from. That's where you know her. It takes a while for the nuance to show up in the Ruffalo performance, but he's not really reaching for it. He's having a great time. He is just Mm -hmm. hurling Mm -hmm. himself at that British accent like a moth against a screen door, and he, <laughs> he'll he hit it eventually. But you do see that this guy is a self-regard, kind of a lost little boy. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'll also throw out there that it isn't – I didn't feel like it was just quirky. You know, and I know that's not really what's being said about her character, but she does go out there. She she does leave it all, you know, on, on the mat, as they say. But she also, I think, demonstrates a lot of evolution from the beginning where she's completely solipsistic and it's just what she wants, and she's completely internal to the end where she's almost scientific about it. She says, you know, I've made some comparisons. This is my access to the world now. This is what I'm most experienced with. And I would like to say, good news, uh, you are better than some of these uh, strangers that I'm meeting in the brothel that I'm working at now. And so our relationship can resume. Isn't that great news? And not understanding how the male ego and male sexual jealousy works, especially for someone as fragile as the Mark Ruffalo character. But yep. there's some growth, I think, in Emma Stone's performance and her character. Yeah, I agree. For me, I'm really fascinated by this idea that this year we have three or four Frankenstein stories. And the three that are in film, there's Bomani stories, the angry black girl and her monster, and Laura Moss's Birth Rebirth, that they're all dealing with women monsters in a way, and they're dealing with reproductive rights and social injustice. And Frankenstein originally was just the most woke novel. You know, all of these things happening in in Mary Shelley's book already, finding a different kind of outrage in 2023, I think is not coincidental. Mm -hmm. The sort of pushback, as repetitive as it might be between this film or even three films, I think is sort of a warning blast or, or a drum regaling the powers that be and saying, we're pretty angry about this stuff. We're pretty angry about this repression and this committed uh, campaign to control women's sexuality. And all of these movies seem to be addressing that all at the same time using the same source material. That's really kind of fascinating from a cultural perspective. I think that's why the parts of the film that I found most compelling are Bella's conversations with these other older female characters about what they've lived through and what they prioritize. Glenn, you mentioned Catherine Hunter, who I know from Andor, shout out, best show. Mm -hmm. And she is this like really fascinating madam, you said, right? And it's in these moments that Bella is sort of learning about like socialism and the means of production and like your body being your labor. So that stuff was really interesting to me. The most I laughed is when this is sort of a companion piece to Gerard Carmichael's Harry character. There's an older female character named Martha, played by Hannah Shugala. And she talks about like, I haven't had sex in 20 years because I have other stuff to do. You know, so in those moments, I sort of was most compelled by what the film was trying to say about like, what is it to be a woman? What matters to you? What choices do you make? And I wish there was just a little bit more of that stuff amid 
everything that this movie is doing otherwise. Yeah. I really respected the fact that I think, you know, as we've been talking about the madam for a period of time, Bella is doing sex work. And one of the things I think is so interesting about that is it is not either presented as like a horrible thing for her, nor is it presented as something she wants to do forever. And it's not that she's doing sex work that necessarily contributes to her growth as a person. It's that she's having a lot of sex that she hasn't gotten to have without any real investment in it, without a lot of risk to herself, especially emotionally speaking. She's getting to kind of try out, here's what I like, here's what I don't like. Yeah. I think that's the one of the roles that that chapter in her story plays without being either, you know, sex work specifically is like how she learns womanhood mm -hmm. or sex work is this terrible dark period that indicates that something's wrong. They really do treat it like a job in which she learns a lot about that job. And interestingly, I don't think in any of those sex scenes is she subservient, which I think is a really interesting wrinkle. We don't like we see her in these positions, but we don't see her in a way where she is being demeaned by the men. And I did appreciate that. I mean, that does go back to this being like a story of empowerment and resistance rather than let's punish this character for what she wants. Right. I like that she even tries to reform the brothel. She tries to make it the system different. And she institutes rules in her own encounters that there has to be some kind of interaction before the interaction, if you will. There has to be a telling of a joke. There, there needs to be a revelation of a childhood secret. And then we can proceed. Right. These little changes that prevent her humiliation and, and give her power even in scenes that are traditionally shot from a male point of view is powerless and maybe erotic. You know, for all the sex in it, I didn't find any of it to be erotic or exploitative. You know, I found it to be very right. empowering and funny uh, in many ways. And I think we don't see sex enough as funny. Yeah, I think that's right. The cinematography at the beginning to me is clearly very intentionally calling to Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what your thoughts are about what Yorgos Lanthimos and everybody else working on the movie is kind of doing formally with the way the movie is shot. I don't know. I think in a movie about points of view and shifting points of view, it's pointed whenever you use lenses to present literally a different perspective or a different point of view. You know, how Bella sees the world initially will be very focused in on the sort of fished-eyed and distorted because of the confusion, perhaps, of where she is. And then it becomes more traditionally framed, I would say, as it moves on. But he also does inner titles where you know each section of the story is split by like a avant-garde art piece where Bella is in the eye of a hurricane or riding on the back of some kind of mythological sea creature. I find that throughout the film, the storytelling and the, the way that it physically looks does reflect a little bit of the maybe the evolution of perspective that we all have, but aren't able to articulate in a visual way. This is Lanthimos attempting for me, I love that it begins as this really kind of distorted, weird, funhouse-looking thing. You know, when she's in Portugal, it's this really brightly lit, beautifully production-designed. You begin to see the world as a very different thing, and then it becomes very sedate and severe almost in Paris when she's learning about production and she's learning about her body. And I, I wonder if there's a way that we can look at it as a planned thing and not just a stylistic thing uh, as a way to tell a character. Yeah. I also think the color story, to start in London with this very riotous, bold, saturated color, to spend most of our time in London 
in black and white. And then to return there later with this same full, like very luxurious palette. I do think so much of it is like storybook logic, which is like when she is in charge of like her own decisions and when she has a grasp of her own sense of place. I think that is when the colors at least become most bold. And I think that's when we lose most of the distortion, right? Because the movie is then able to trust her perspective to give these things to us Mm -hmm. while still being in this like imaginative kind of space. That is very helpful. Yeah. When it does go to color, to me, there were these, particularly early on, like when she's in Paris, there are these deep, deep, deep colors that look to me like, they don't just look like any color. They look like colors from like a Technicolor movie from like 1952. Like weirdly, it still has a stylistic connection to the early black and white stuff because there is a continuity of, it seems like out of time, which makes sense because it's, it's just sort of a not in the real world kind of thing. You know, there's a, there's a sequence where she is looking over a wall And I was like, well, Uh this is not a literal world. This is a, it's a particular kind of world. All of the locations that she's in, the artifice that they all look like vaguely fakey fakey is clearly intentional. It's supposed to look movie set-ish. Yeah. I mean, I think the filmmaker wants you to see this as a film that is carefully wrought. Right. There are no accidents on screen. There is no ad-libbing. There is no there is no um, happenstance. This is all very pointed and very directed. And you might not like where it goes, but it's doing everything it's doing very intentionally. You know, there, there's a moment where the Mark Ruffalo character gives Bella essentially an ultimatum. And she says, so my choices are that you murder me or I marry you. That's the choice that you're presenting me because you're so much in love with me, essentially. Again, this is the good version of Barbie. This is the version that is not going to give you a three-minute speech about it, but it will repeat these themes over and over in different contexts to say, even here, even lovely understanding Max is in some way trying to control her over and over and over again because this is just how our society is written. I think what I'll say in defense of Barbie and as someone who cried during that speech is that that speech felt to me written from lived female experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I just think that parts of this movie feel to me written by someone who like broadly understands gender relationships and feminist studies, but hasn't figured out necessarily like the nuances of what that is like day to day. And I think both films serve different functions and different audiences. This is more of like a Wes Anderson meets David Lynch freakout dream. And I love that. It's very interesting. It's all very interesting. Well, I cannot wait to hear what you all think about poor things. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH. Up next, what's making us happy this week? Support for NPR comes from ADP. Say you own a business, then suddenly a solar flare adds an extra hour to each day. Would you add an extra shift, shift office hours, install those weird sleeping pod things? You can try to figure it out on your own or just get ADP. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to help your business take on the next anything, even unexplainable cosmic events that end up granting humanity an extra hour a day. ADP. Always designing for people. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the official Hacks podcast from Max. 
Join the creators and showrunners of Hacks as they discuss each episode and speak with the cast and crew about the making of the series. Listen to the official Hacks podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Third Love. Third Love makes solutions for every bra problem. Give yourself more lift, smoothing, and get straps that stay put. Every style's wear-tested on real women, made from premium materials, with a virtual fitting room to help you find your perfect fit. Comfort and support are guaranteed. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. This message is brought to you by Wondery. In the climate-ravaged year of 2072, the city of Pura protects residents from global catastrophes, but a dark secret threatens Pura's very existence. Binge all episodes of The Last City ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Hey, it's Linda Holmes with a quick but very sincere thank you to our Pop Culture Happy Hour Plus supporters and anyone listening who donates to public media. After all, public media means you, the public, support it. Everything you hear from the NPR network really cannot exist without your contributions. For anyone listening who isn't a supporter yet, right now is a great time to change that, for you to get invested in creating a more informed public. That's our whole mission at NPR. That's why we're here. If you like perks, Pop Culture Happy Hour Plus offers sponsor-free episodes. If you want to make a tax-deductible donation to your favorite station or stations in the NPR network, that is great, too. What really matters is that you are part of the community that makes this work possible. Teams across the NPR network need resources to do their best work, and those resources cost money. We need microphones. I'm talking into one right now. Laptops, software, whatever amount you can pitch in makes a real difference. So please give today at donate.npr.org slash happy or explore NPR plus at plus.npr.org. And thank you. Now it's time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What's making us happy this week? Walter Chow, what's making you happy this week? I am proud to tell you to report that is my annual reviewing of Solitary, the uh, reality television show from 2006 to 2010. Mm -hmm. It is about a group of contestants who are put into solitary pods, completely isolated from each other in the world. Their only interaction with the outside world is sort of a HAL-like supercomputer, AI, who uh, puts them through their paces and makes them do a silly eating contest or walking contest or balancing things. And the dark tea times of the soul that they share on their private diaries and their coming to terms with their own trauma and their senses of self-worth. Every year, I find time to rewatch these 36 episodes of uh, just brilliance. Uh-huh. It, it scratches every itch for me. And I find every year around Christmas time is when I want to watch Solitary again. Fabulous. You can get it through Amazon Prime. Uh, Apple TV has it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are episodes available for purchase. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Walter. Roxana, what's making you happy this week? What is making me happy this week is a feeling that I am constantly chasing is the feeling of watching a Jeremy Saulnier movie. 
I love Blue Ruin. I love Green Room. I love Hold the Dark. So in my continued, what books are available on the digital library at 3 a.m. when I can't sleep, I stumbled upon the works of Southern noir crime writer S.A. Cosby. He is from Virginia. He is writing these like very bloody, vengeful thrillers that make me feel like I'm watching a sonnier film. The one that I'm reading right now is called Razorblade Tears. It is about a gay couple who are basically killed execution style and their respective fathers, neither of whom was okay with their son's homosexuality, are ex-convicts and they team up to investigate this case because the cops won't. That's a lot of stuff I love. I love like father-child dynamics. I love a torture sequence in a book. That's been really fun. So I've been making my way through the works of S.A. Cosby. Thank you very much, Roxana. Excellent pick. I always love it when we can bring in a book. Glenn Weldon, what is making you happy this week? Well, I love the Assassin's Creed games. I played each and every one, even the very bad ones, because the good ones, like Black Flag, where you're a pirate assassin, and Valhalla, where you're a Viking assassin, are so rich and so satisfying. The latest is Assassin's Creed Mirage, and it's a return to old school Assassin's Creed, which means a lot of the open world RPG stuff is gone. It's a much more classic stealth game. There is a lot of running away in this game, lots of hiding in haystacks and flower beds, which mm-hmm. can't help but reframe kind of the vibe of the series because I come to these games to be a cool, badass assassin who strikes from the shadows. And I spend a lot of these games crouching amid <laughs> the begonias. You can't see me. I'm in the, in the flowers. The setting of this particular game is 9th century Baghdad, and there's so much to do and see and learn about. I said it. Yes, this game is history homework with a lot more um, disemboweling. This game did not make NPR's list of the best games of 2023, which is this amazing searchable kind of mini site where you can filter your preferences. Think of it as a very scaled down version of books we love. Right. I've already found four games I would never have heard of if it hadn't been for that list. So my personal rec is Assassin's Creed Mirage. But my universal recommendation is to check out NPR's best games of 2023. Absolutely. Way to get that plug in there, buddy. There you go. What is making me happy this week? I am the person who watches all the true crime miniseries. Right. But most of them I would not go out of my way to say really good television. But they are airing one on HBO on Monday nights called Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning, which is about the 1989 case in which a guy shot his wife in their car and then claimed that a black carjacker had been responsible for her death. This set off a manhunt for this random black carjacker who did not exist, as it turned out, that created a a terrible, terrible environment of, you know, police harassment for young black men. And here's what I like about this. And this series is made by Jason Hare, who's the guy who made um, the Michael Jordan series, The Last Dance. He's really good. And out of three episodes, they spend essentially the first episode talking about race in Boston getting into like how that took root in the city, the history of housing segregation, the history of school segregation and subsequently busing, and how by the time this happened, conditions had been created for a monstrous happening sort of like this. And what I like about it is it's much more about everybody else than it is about this guy 
who killed his wife. As we tape this, they've aired one episode. There are three total. Um, again, they're airing on on Mondays on HBO. And obviously, this will stream on uh, wherever you get your Max content. Uh, again, it's called Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning, and uh, highly recommended. And that is what is making me happy this week. If you want links for what we recommended, plus some additional recommendations, sign up for our newsletter. That's at npr.org slash newsletter. That brings us to the end of our show. Roxana Haddadi, Walter Chow, Glenn Weldon, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. This episode is produced by Hafsa Fathima and edited by Mike Katsif. Our supervising producer is Jessica Reedy. And Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Linda Holmes, and we'll see you all next week. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Delta Airlines. When you think about it, half the trips the world takes are trips home. Home. What we all eventually long to get back to, no matter what took us away to begin with. Those at Delta know that. Because all 100,000 of them are, above all, travelers just like you. It's why they try to make you feel at home long before you even get there. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR.